Hi guys and welcome to today's episode of Vegan World. Nice to have you back and I hope you're enjoying the series. Now on today's show we have Ellie Lax. Ellie is the co-founder and owner of The Gentle Barn. You can find these guys online at gentlebarn.org. They're based in California, Tennessee and Missouri. And Ellie's stories you can find in her book My Gentle Barn. The story itself is an amazing story. It talks about Ellie's life as a young girl all the way through to the current day when her goal and her mission in life was to have her own animal sanctuary and care and tend to injured animals. The Gentle Barn aren't just any ordinary rescue sanctuary. They're a place where animals come to heal. And throughout the course of the interview, you'll hear a lot of amazing stories that Ellie has put across so well, ranging from Dudley the Bull to Andrew the Horse. Now, disclaimer, I've actually been to the Gentle Barn uh, in September last year, which you'll hear about in the course of the interview. I was amazed by what I actually found when I went there. I was hoping it would be as good as it was, but it actually surpassed my expectations. The place itself is in Southern California, near Los Angeles. And it was a baking hot day when we saw cows. I actually got to hug a cow. We saw Earl the emu. We saw Pebbles the goat, who was a particular favorite of mine. And we saw Ferdinand the bull, who you'll hear about a little bit later in the interview. So many interesting animals with great stories. They were all neglected and abused in the past and have often suffered violence at the hands of humans. So the work that Ellie does is particularly welcome, both from the public's point of view but also from the animals, because without her, I dread to think where these animals would be today. First of all, Ellie, thank you very much and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Ellie, tell us about the gentle barn, your idea and how it came into being. Well, the Gentle Barn was my dream since I was seven years old. I was one of those kids that was born obsessed with animals, and I just wanted to be with them all the time. And so as soon as I could walk, I was out running in the lakes, watching tadpoles turn to frogs, playing in the woods and sitting with the bunny rabbits and finding salamanders. And I just thought it was just a magical world full of mythical, magical creatures. And as I got older... I started noticing that sometimes animals need help. I would find baby birds that fell out of their nest or turtles that broke their shells, and uh, I would want to help them. And so I started bringing animals home when they needed help. And by the time I was seven, my little plan was to have a house full of animals that that I saved, and they would be my friends. Uh, My poor parents were not amused, did not want a house full of animals. So they started taking them away when I was at school and I'd come home to find them gone, which was really traumatic. And I would say, how could you do this to me? And they'd say, Ellie, when you grow up, you can have as many animals as you want. And I would yell at my poor parents at seven years old. I would say, you'll see when I grow up, I'll have a huge place full of animals and I'll show the world how beautiful they are. And I don't know where this idea came from, but every time I yelled it at my poor parents, I would think to myself, yeah, I really got to do that. That's a great idea. So the more I yelled it, the more obsessed with the idea I became until I would sit in school and I would doodle pictures of animals until my notebook, my desk, and my arms were covered in pictures of animals. And I would go to sleep at night and I would imagine the pigs I would get to give tummy rubs to and the chickens I would get to hold and the cows I would get to hug. And so it became very real in my mind. 
um, I could taste it, smell it, and touch it. It's where I lived. But I had no idea how to start a gentle barn. Um, I didn't have land. I didn't have money. I had no idea how to do it. So I procrastinated for a very, very long time. And it wasn't until more than 20 years later that I was a young adult living on my own in Los Angeles. And I was doing an errand one day and discovered a petting zoo I'd never seen before. And I went into the petting zoo just to be nosy to see what they were doing there. And um, what I found there was absolutely horrific. They were beating the ponies to keep going in circles for hours at a time. There was not a drop of water on the property, even though it was well over 100 degrees. There were dead animals in cages and animals with long, overgrown hooves and deformed legs. And it was just absolutely sickening. So I was running for the door as fast as I could to get out of there. And blocking the exit was a very old goat that looked me in the eyes, stopped me in my tracks, and asked me for help. And I reasoned, well, I live in a small house with a half-acre backyard. I guess I could bring home a goat. So I went to find the owner of the petting zoo and said, hey, can I have that goat? And she said, no. And I said, well, can I buy her and name your price? And she said, no. And I said, listen, that goat's going to die. She's in terrible shape. I'm going to stay here till you say yes. And I stayed there for 12 days. And then on the 13th day, the woman came to find me and said, take the goat and get the heck out of here. So I was able to bring Mary the goat home. And I found um, a veterinarian in the Yellow Pages, and he came out and removed her tumors and trimmed her overgrown toenails and showed me how to massage her deformed legs so she could walk again. And a few months later, she was bouncing around the backyard as happy as can be. And it was the greatest feeling I'd ever had in my entire life. I was like, this is what I was born to do. I finally felt like I was who I was meant to be doing what I was meant to do. And it was the greatest feeling in the world. So meanwhile, I had been calling authorities on that place to see if they can make conditions better for those, the rest of the animals. And the authorities said the same thing. They said, um, there's nothing we can do. She's connected politically. Walk away. But uh, that's just not in my nature, apparently. So <laughs> I found myself driving back to that petting zoo and telling the lady that I understood that she had other animals that needed help. Um, I showed her and told her what I had done for Mary the goat and how well she was doing. And I said, look, no questions asked. I'll take suffering animals off your hands. And she said, fine. And she went in the back and she started dragging animals out of the back broken bones, pneumonia, scared to death, dying. Uh, there was a pony, there were some pigs, chickens, goats, sheep, and I brought them all home. And the same mobile vet helped me fix them. And a few months later, I woke up in the morning, looked out a little window to a backyard that was now full of animals, and said, holy cow, I just started my dream. So that's how the gentle barn got started. And the gentle barn now does two things. The first of which is we rescue animals that no one else wants, that have nowhere else to go, because they're too old, too sick, too lame, or too scared to be adoptable. We bring them into the gentle barn. Um, we heal them with vet care, acupuncture, acupressure, chiropractics, deep tissue massage therapy, ultrasound, ice therapy, water therapy, energetic healing, nutritional supplements, and lots of love. And they're finally happy and healthy if we can find them homes of their own great if not, we give them sanctuary with us for the rest of their lives. And then when they're ready, we partner with them to heal people with the same stories of abuse and neglect and to connect children 
to the love and magic of nature and animals. And the Gentle Barn is now 20 years old. We are now a national organization located in Los Angeles, California, Nashville, Tennessee, and St. Louis, Missouri. And we hope to be in as many states as possible, leading the movement to kindness and compassion, seeding animals, opening hearts, and connecting people and animals together to realize that we're all the same. That story of Mary, uh, the goat that you mentioned, Ellie, uh, is one of many yeah. stories that you mentioned in your book, My Gentle Barn, where animals heal and children learn to hope. Now, I've read that book and I literally could not put it down. I think I read it in two sittings, which if anybody who knows me will know that that's probably a first <laughs> that I've ever done. <laughs> read a book cover to cover in such a short period of time because I was fascinated by the stories that you had in there. But one of the things that really jumped out of the pages at me was the link between animals that have suffered the abuse that you were alluding to before and people who have suffered similar types of abuse. Or when you talk about how people have been abused and the animals have yeah. been abused, so you run the outreach programs um, to disadvantaged youths, for example, and bring them to the gentle barn and let them see the great work that you do. So how do you yeah. find the interaction between the animals and, and the people? Yeah, so... We work with agencies. We don't work with individuals necessarily. We work with agencies. So whether it's a foster home, a probation camp, a drug and alcohol rehab center, a domestic violence shelter, a homeless shelter. And what we do basically is we reach out to these agencies and we let them know that they're part of their population that will not respond to traditional therapy. The part of their population that's too shut down, too angry, won't talk, and therefore isn't really progressing or healing, those are the people that we want them to bring to the gentle barn. Uh, in traditional therapy, in order to heal, you have to talk about your experiences and your feelings. You have to be very vulnerable and open, and you have to kind of revisit the past in order to move on to the future. And um, some people can't do that. Some people are just not willing to feel that raw and vulnerable. So when they won't talk, then traditional therapy doesn't help them. So we get that part of the population to the gentle barn, and instead of getting them to talk about their experiences and what they've been through and their feelings that they don't want to talk about, instead of getting them to talk, we do the talking. And we talk about the animal stories, knowing full well that while we're talking, while, while we're telling the animals' stories, we're telling their story. And all of a sudden, they hear their story being told. They know they're not alone and there's someone else that has suffered their pain. They see the animals happy and has friends and is loved and loving. And they realize that if someone with their exact same story can forgive and learn to love again, that they can too. So um, it's very transformative for the people to come and bond with these animals. And at the same time, they get to practice gentleness by holding smaller animals. They get to practice leadership skills by handling very large animals. They get to hug cows and cuddle turkeys. They get to grow fruits and vegetables in the garden, put their hands in Mother Earth, and learn about real food, real nutrition. And then get to connect with nature and animals in a very, very deep way, which ultimately leads them to connect more deeply with themselves. I like to say they find themselves in the barnyard. Now, as I said at the start, Ellie, I've been lucky enough to visit the Gentle Barn last um, September. My partner and I were traveling down the, the West Coast. 
One of the things that made a big impression on me was the care and the compassion that you and your team of volunteers actually showed to the animals and how easy and relaxed the animals actually seem with humans, which is amazing in some ways considering some of their backstories. So just in terms of some of those stories, and it feels a bit, I don't know, a bit silly to pick one or two examples because each of the stories are fantastic. Um, on the website, when it eventually goes up, you'll see a photograph of me with Pebbles the goat who I was very fond of uh, when I visited mm-hmm. last September. But can you talk to us about a couple of the examples? And I'm thinking in particular of Ferdinand the Cow. Sure, yeah, I love telling his story. It's a, it's an amazing story, uh, one which I've never seen before. Um, I think this is quite possibly the most miraculous thing that's ever happened in the history of the Gentle Barn. Uh, basically, we were given a wonderful opportunity to rescue an orphaned baby cow. Uh, his mom had been sent to slaughter, which is awful. And at eight weeks old, we were able to save his life and bring him home to the gentle barn. Um, the start of his story was most one of the most horrific things I've ever witnessed, because for days when he first arrived at the gentle barn, all he did was run in circles and call out for his mom. It was excruciating to watch. So in an effort to show him that he wasn't alone and to help him through it, me and my 12-year-old daughter moved into the barn with him. And we slept there and spent all day with him. And we never left the barn for an entire week. And finally, his cries subsided. Finally, he started coming near us. Finally, we were able to pet him and hold him and cradle his head in our laps. We sang to him and we read to him and we talked to him every time he cried out. And eventually he started um, kind of being more receptive to the love that we had to offer. Once that happened, we started enlisting the help of our volunteers and staff to take four-hour shifts throughout the day and night so that for the first 30 days that he was with us, he was not alone even for one minute. We were always there. We slept with him. We, We spooned him and cradled him and cuddled him, sang to him and read to him. And we kept, and I would meditate with him every single day and kind of paint the picture of the life that he had waiting for him. I would talk about the fresh food that he would eat and the clean water he would drink and the shelter and the warm barns that he would have. I would talk about the friends that he would make and the love that he would receive from everyone coming near. I would talk about how he got to play and jump and run and gallop and that there was this wonderful life waiting for him. And so as we told the story of what was waiting for him, slowly his recovery unfolded and he started embracing the joy and the love that was waiting here for him. Well, after the 30-day quarantine, we needed to pair him with an animal so he could have a forever friend in the barnyard with him. So we asked one of our matriarch cows. She was one of our elder cows. She's very gentle and very motherly. Uh, Her name is Lucy. So we asked Lucy if she would be willing to uh, pair with Ferdinand and kind of protect him and take care of him and uh, befriend him. So she said, yes, she would love to, that she would be very honored to do that. So we brought Lucy to meet Ferdinand, and it was love at first moo. She took one look at him. (laughs) She took one look at him and just loved him, and she groomed him, and she laid next to him, and she ate by his side, and they really formed a wonderful bond. Well, needless did I know that this bond ran way deeper than I thought because a few weeks later she loved him so much and she adopted him so completely as her own that her body created milk for him. 
Wow. And she now nurses him three times a day, and he's her little boy. I've seen those guys in action, actually. When I, As I said, when I visited, I got my photograph taken with them. I think they were having a little bit of an afternoon nap when I saw them. But uh, <laughs> absolutely beautiful creatures they really are. And it's such a beautiful story as well. It really is. And I feel bad just picking one example because every one of them is so unique in their own way and so powerful as well. I remember one of the main takeaways I remember that day when I walked around in the the Southern California heat, which for an Irishman in anything over 70 degrees is uh, like being in a sauna. But <laughs> I remember I got to hug a cow for the first time ever, which is, I thought, this is going to be a bit weird, but it was one of the most wonderful experiences. <laughs> and I, I would do it again tomorrow if I could, you know. Um, that's what visitors who go to the gentle barn can expect to, to experience. But one of the more uplifting stories that I, I remember from the day, Ellie, was when we took a walk over to where the horses were, were kept in the shade. And we met Andrew, the horse. And he's quite an interesting mm. story. You can tell us that. Yeah, Andrew has a wonderful story. Um, Andrew is a horse, and he was kept in a stallion to stud with other horses, to breed with other horses. Um, so there's a stereotype that stallions are dangerous, and so when people have stallions, they're oftentimes very cruel to them, um, very aggressive with them because they're scared of them. So uh, Andrew, for 25 years, was kept in a stall, um, the only time he came out of his stall was when he was mating with a female. And when he was mating with a female, the people were very, very cruel to him. So he developed a strong sense of uh, fear of humans. After 25 years of being serviced like this, he was finally too old to use for a stud. And so they threw him into a ravine to die. Um, he had been there for a really long time. He was nothing but bones. He was dying and weak. And um, the authorities found him and brought him to the animal shelter. Because he was old and thin and so sickly, they actually scheduled him to be euthanized. And um, the shelter volunteer was holding him while the doctor was about to inject his veins with the deadly euthanol. When the volunteer suddenly realized, oh, my God, the gentle barn. We haven't called the gentle barn. So she, said, she explained to the vet that there's an agency that takes in animals that nobody else wants, that they neglected to call us, and that they wanted to see if maybe we would take him because we're known to take animals that no one else will. So the vet agreed to wait five minutes, and as he was waiting patiently, she called me, and she got me on the phone, and she described what he looked like and what he had been through and how sad he is, and she asked if we would take him. Um, and I said to her, look, we don't take stallions because uh, – to have an intact male, you need special fencing, special pastures. It's like a whole ordeal. I said, but instead of euthanizing him, maybe the vet would be willing to neuter him, and then we can come get him. So she asked the vet if that would be possible, and he said yes. And instead of euthanizing him, he neutered him. And then we went out and got him and brought him home. So when I found him for the first time at the shelter, he was nothing but bones, withered and shrunken, his head was resting on the ground with no energy, no life. His eyes were vacant. Um, he, he was preparing to die. And I went up to him and I introduced myself and I told him what we have to offer at the gentle barn. I told him that we have this beautiful place and that we take in animals that have nowhere else to go and that he'll get groomed every single day and he'll get fresh breakfast so that his body will start to shine 
He'll get clean water. He'll play with other horses. He'll get the love of humans. We'll take him for a walk. And as I'm describing this life at the gentle barn, his head starts lifting off the ground until by the time I was done, he was gazing right into my eyes. And he was like, yeah, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) I'll bet. So I put his halter on and I said, I'm going to lead you to the the trailer. I'm going to drive you home. So we started walking out. He was very excited to go. And just as we were about to leave the shelter gate and walk up into the trailer, he stopped and he refused to walk forward. And he started shaking his head in a particular direction. He just started pointing his nose, if you will, over and over and over and over again. And at first I thought that he had something in his eyes or something in his ears, but I checked his body. There was nothing wrong. There was no flies bothering him. And he just refused to move and he kept pointing over and over and over again in the same direction. So finally, I looked at what he was pointing at with his nose, with his, with his head, and he was pointing at another horse. So I asked the shelter volunteer, hey, what's with that horse? And she said, yeah, uh, we're going to euthanize him in about an hour. He's really old and he's broken and nobody's going to adopt him. So I looked at Andrew and said, yes, we can take him too. So Andrew saved his friend Patrick's life. And Patrick who had also had a devastating story about being ridden too hard and thrown out to die and neglected and unwanted in the whole nine yards. Um, We brought him home, and together they started gaining weight. Um, We started straightening their spines and working on their bodies to become whole. We started um, helping them learn to trust us with gentle hands and lots of time and patience. And the two of them were absolute best friends. That's um, Patrick, yeah, it is. It's an amazing story. Their intelligence, their affection, it just never fails to amaze me. Really inspiring as well, because I remember Patrick from my trip, and I remember the curvature in his spine from when, as you said, he'd been ridden too hard, or he'd been used, you know, for those purposes for quite some time. And just to see how happy they looked that day after hearing the backstories behind them was absolutely incredible. Really, really moving stories, Ellie. You really deserve an awful lot of credit, which um, you deserve every bit of credit that you get for the work that you do, because you guys are absolutely amazing. You really are. One of the things that I've often wondered when I, I first came to be aware of you guys with the film Call to Rescue, uh, now this yeah. was a lot of different volunteers a lot of different animal sanctuaries on it but what jumped off, off the screen at me was the energy and the enthusiasm that you guys brought to it not that the other guys didn't but you, you guys were particularly noticeable in that and then as I got to do a little bit more research about the gentle barn and some of the work that you did um, I began to look at the challenges that you faced as well now that you're hoping to expand into other locations as well so can you talk to me about those challenges? And I'm thinking in particular about the story of Dudley the Bull. It's a particularly favourite story of mine, and it's on the gentlebarn.org website if anybody wants to go and have a look at that. Yeah, we, we discovered, um, I call them all cows, but I guess technically he was a bull. <laughs> um, we discovered a cow that, had miss, that was missing a foot. And he was just in tremendous pain. And this woman that knew about him made 200 phone calls and no one could help him. And so she called from Tennessee all the way to California to see if we had any suggestions. And just a few weeks prior, I had just told my husband that all I wanted for my birthday was to hug it, was to rescue a cow. 
So uh, when my husband got her call, he did some research to find a bovine surgeon in the area and then to find a company that would make a prosthetic. And uh, once he had found those things, he said, happy birthday, we're going to Tennessee. So we went to Tennessee to rescue Dudley, uh, to put him through the amputations and the surgeries and the preparation for to be fit with a prosthetic foot. And then the prosthetic foot was designed, and then he wore it for the first time and spent weeks getting used to wearing it. And then he was ready to be discharged from the hospital. And by then he was world famous and very, very loved. And so we asked our board if we could open the General Barn in Tennessee for Dudley. And they said yes. So that's how we opened our second location in Tennessee. And there's many, many challenges to running a sanctuary. Um, it's so rewarding. It's such good work. And in a lot of respects, it's easy and very, very fulfilling. Um, but there are challenges that come along with it. Um, I think, obviously, so uh, the financial burden of caring for 200 animals and making sure they have food and vet care, mm-hmm. making sure they have all they need um, is always something that it would be a given for running a sanctuary. It's just the kind of daily task of raising money and getting the community to be involved with our work and to support it. Um, and then hiring the right staff and making sure that they're kind but strong, um, that they're loving and nurturing, yet could be you know, keeping their self safe and be, be confident um, those are all things that we need to factor in. Um, our wonderful volunteer base does such wonderful, wonderful work. But in the beginning of the General Barn, we had to really learn how to cultivate positive and effective volunteers. Um, so we learned how to do a screening process and a training process, and we finally figured it out. And now we have wonderful volunteers that come into the organization and do really, really good work. Um, you certainly do. I've met a lot of them firsthand, and their enthusiasm was clearly uh, coming from you, Ellie. And I could see <laughs> you obviously tutored them very well and taught them very well. What's next for the Gentle Barn in terms of next steps? I know you're, you're planning or hoping to expand into maybe other states as well. Yeah. Um, the goal of the Gentle Barn is basically to get in front of as many people as we possibly can. Um, I believe that the majority of people would identify as animal lovers. I think if you went into any big crowd and you said, who loves animals? I think the majority of them would raise their hands. But we have this disconnect with loving animals, but still eating them and kind of not really knowing what really happens to animals in the animal industries. So, um, you know, if we just simply rescue animals in the middle of nowhere, we could keep doing it forever and it won't make really a difference to the big picture. But if we can get in front of as many people as we can to open their hearts to the intelligence and affection of animals, help them hug cows and cuddle turkeys and give pigs tummy rubs and understand what happens to these animals in factory farms, then we can open people's eyes, we can open people's hearts, and we can guide people to loving animals more um, through a plant-based diet. And that will save millions of animals and will ultimately end with having a peaceful world. So that's our goal. So we, we want to get in front of as many people as we can. So in order to do that, um, I speak all over the world, but we also want, and of course we share stories and the intelligence of the animals through social media, but we want to open more sanctuaries. So um, I, w- I, I really would like to go to New York next. I'd like to be on the East Coast. I'd like to do something for the carriage horses there. I'd like to find a way to shift the culture from enslaving animals to cherishing them 
um, and we're putting a plan in place for that. I was just going to say, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because I'm actually going to, to New York next uh, Wednesday uh, and we're staying right beside Central Park where those carriage horses that you mentioned are made to work. And I read something, I think it was in the New York Times about a week or two ago, whereby there's a piece of local legislation has been passed that they're actually taking them in off the roads. And I couldn't believe that they were actually made to work on the roads, you know, with traffic going past them and what have you. They're actually taking them into the park just to work. And I think a lot of the vegan and animal rights activists who campaigned hard for that to happen to see it as a victory, and it is a victory, and it's a step in the right direction. So it's just really interesting to hear you say that, actually, because it, it resonates quite well with what's actually going on at the minute and using animals as, as our property, as machines, when the whole ethos of behind a gentle barn is to treat them as equals. Yeah, and the thing is, is like, yes, that is a victory, and it's a step in the right direction, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, this issue about the carriage horses in New York City has come up for us time and time again. And um, in previous years, we weren't able to do anything about it. We didn't have the funding. We weren't organized enough. We, we, we were busy in other states. But it just keeps coming to the surface, and we keep getting approached by it. And so recently, we did some research into how these horses are actually living. Now, by my standards, if I could paint the ideal world, I would never have animals carry people. I would never have birds in cages. I would have 100% freedom for animals. That's the, that's the world I crave. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as far as our civilization where it is today, if horses got to run in pastures, eat grass, play with other horses, live in nice warm barns, have a retirement plan, have a rehabilitation program for when they get injured, and then they just have to pull a cart five hours a day, I think, I don't know, like maybe that would be okay, maybe. But that's not how they live. They don't get to run in, in pastures. They don't get to interact with other horses. They don't get to eat fresh grass. They don't live in warm barns. They actually live in parking garages. So they're either hitched up to a cart pulling it in the street, or they're hitched up to a post in a parking garage. They don't run free. They don't socialize with other horses. There is no retirement plan. They either pull or they drop dead in the street. And there is no recovery program. So if they get injured, they're, they, they're either forced to pull with their injury or they're euthanized. And I just don't think that that's fair. I don't think that's reasonable at all. And it's just kind of like the epitome of um, slavery. So I'd like to see something done about it. But I will tell you that yelling at the carriage workers to not do it anymore is not a solution. There's thousands of them. There's about 2,000 carriage workers and they're in a union. They're protected by the Teamsters, and the Teamsters are connected politically. So they're not going to all of a sudden just quit their jobs, and now there's 2,000 people out of work. That's not reasonable. Um, We have to find a solution that's a win-win. And so in meditation over this situation one day, I was given an incredible idea. And the idea is to, to partner with Tesla to electrify these carriages, make them electric, and then build a gentle barn in the middle of Central Park where the horses can retire. So horses will still be part of the culture of New York City, but instead of making them pull carts, they'll be living in a beautiful sanctuary. And carriages will still be part of the culture of New York, but they'll be electric, 
the drivers will keep their jobs, the Teamsters will be happy, and the politicians will look like heroes because now they have resolved the problem with a very environmentally friendly, sustainable, green solution, which will model for the world. So it's a win-win for everybody, and that's what I want to do. Um, and, and I want a gentle barn in the middle of Central Park so that people can come and brush the horses and give them carrots and cookies and can even take them for walks, hand walks around Central Park. And the horses will be loved and the carriages will drive on and model um, eco-friendly solutions and everybody's happy. You know what? That's one of the best ideas I've heard in the last five years. That is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, so that's what we're working on. I'm really excited about it. Elon Musk, if you're listening to this, make it happen. We're going to make it happen. Call me. <laughs> Elon Musk, I just need you to call me. We need to talk. <laughs> Get on it, man. You know. Do it now. <laughs> yeah. All the carriages will say Tesla on the side of them, and then there'll be Tesla charging stations all over New York City, yeah. and Elon it's, will be happy. It's free advertising, right? So. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to see Central Park, but uh, you know, I'll keep an eye out for those beautiful creatures, and hopefully, uh, their future is a little bit different in the, the not too distant future. Ellie, if people listening to this want to uh, sponsor one of your animals or want to want to help out, how, how, how can they do that? Yeah, they should start by going to gentlebarn.org to our website. And there they can see all about the programs for kids, the programs for animals. They could go to the animal section and pick out their favorite animal with their favorite story and sponsor them for a nominal donation each month. They could also make a donation towards hay and vet care. They can also make a donation towards bringing a group out to the gentle barn to fall in love with animals. Fantastic. And if anybody is listening, I would strongly suggest you have a look at Pebbles the goat. She is absolutely beautiful. She really is. She won my heart that day I was there. (laughs) (laughs) Ellie, listen, it's been an absolute joy having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I could talk to you all day. This is absolutely heaven to hear these stories and hear the, the uplifting stories of the animals and, you know, the difference you've made in their lives. And thank you so much for everything that you do for the animals. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So my thanks to Ellie Lex at the Gentle Barn for today's interview. Uh, Get yourselves online. Have a look at these guys at uh, thegentlebarn.org. There you can see the stories behind these beautiful animals and even sponsor them and help contribute to the amazing work that these guys do. Having seen the work firsthand, I can't stress enough the importance of the work the Gentle Barn do in showing compassion and love to animals who have suffered terrible violence at the hands of humans. But not only have Ellie and Jay rescued and healed these animals and given them a wonderful life that so sadly is denied the billions of other animals, but they utilise their stories to help vulnerable people who have suffered as well. And so they've turned a negative into a massive positive. So... That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us, guys. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the episode. There'll be another one along this time next week. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating uh, wherever you get your podcast from. And if you like the show, if you really like the show, maybe you'll give us a nice positive review on iTunes because that really helps us get bumped up the charts. That would be amazing. Thanks so much, and I'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye for now.